Once again, we're going to be turning to the book of Job. This is an Old Testament book. Uh, not quite in the middle of your Bible, but pretty close. It's on page 421 of the ESD Pew Bibles. And we're going to be looking at Job chapter 7 in its entirety. This is part of our ongoing series, Job, God, and Suffering. It addresses the, that important topic and the question of why. We're going to be looking at that in detail this morning. So Job chapter 7, 1 through 21. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Show us the true meaning of this passage. Help us to understand the book of Job. Help us to apply the book of Job. And help us to see how this scripture points to Jesus Christ. Amen. Daniel was heading off to college and he was cleaning out his room and he was trying to decide what to take, what to leave, and, and what to throw away. So he had an open suitcase on his bed and he had a garbage bag on the floor and he was going through the things in his room. And he came upon all his sports memorabilia over the years. From an early age, his parents had encouraged him to go out for sports. He was naturally athletic and, and inclined towards athletics, and so they, they tried to expose him to all different types of sports. They had him in, in t-ball and, and gymnastics, and then later on they, they tried wrestling, and, and they tried, as he got into school, um, uh, football and track and field, and he, he really tried just about everything. But he really liked basketball, and that was what he was best at. And he had won some awards. He had won a trophy for basketball. And as he came across the trophy, he looked at it, and it brought back some positive memories. And he said, yeah, this is something I'm going to keep. And he set it on his shelf. And then he opened the rest of the, the drawer where he kept all these things, and he, he picked out a couple of medals, and he decided he would keep those. And then he saw in the drawer the rest of it was really just a bunch of ribbons, a lot of them participation ribbons that he had gotten when he, was, when he was much younger. And he thought about it all of about a second until he just pulled the whole drawer out, went over to the garbage, and, and kind of just shook it out. And they all fell into the garbage, and he threw them away. And that was the end of it. He was done. Not worth keeping. And I think most of us are probably like Daniel. There's really not a whole lot of incentive to hold on to some of those old participation ribbons, especially with the passage of time. Uh, after all, there are trophies to be won, and they're much more valuable than, than a ribbon. Really, that's all it is. It's a token that confirms that you were there. You were on the team. Okay? You wore the jersey. That's about it. It says nothing about your performance, or, or if you were the star player, or, or your stats. It just indicates that you were there. What if I told you there was a participation ribbon that's more valuable than any trophy you could ever earn? In fact, it's more valuable than anything that the world has to offer. When we look at Job chapter 7, we're going to see that participation ribbon. Because in Job chapter 7, he's at rock bottom. He's, he's bottomed out, he's had it, he's done 
And so he cries out to God. But he also asks what is possibly the biggest question in the book of Job. And that is, why? Why have you made me your mark, God? Why am I suffering? And because we can and because God intends for us to, we're going to turn to God's New Testament revelation to find that answer. And when we find that answer, we're going to also see what that participation ribbon is. It's the overarching answer to the question, why do believers suffer? So here's Job chapter 7. See if you can hear for those two things. Job saying, I'm at bottom, and then also asking the big question. Has not man a hard service on earth, and are not his days like the days of a hired hand, like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who, long, who looks for his wages? So I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lay down, I say, when shall I rise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you would set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him, that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. I think you can hear both of those components in this chapter, the crying out as he hits bottom and also that why question. It starts in verse one, he compares his life to hard service and, and living like, like those of uh, the days of a hired hand. Remember, especially in ancient times, the, the hired hand or the laborer was not free to do whatever they wanted to do. They were being paid a wage, and they usually worked from sunrise to sunset, emptying themselves physically. They long for the shadow. In other words, they long for the end of the day because then they know finally they can cease from their labor they can collect their wages, which would, which would be probably about enough to buy food, and they collapse into bed and repeat the cycle the next day. The only thing that someone in this continual labor or sleep cycle can look forward to is, is the end of the day and, and relief from their work, sleep. And Job is saying he looks forward to the end of his life like a laborer looks towards the end of the day. 
Verses 3 and 4, so I am allotted months of emptiness. Nights of misery are portioned to me. His life is empty. He's longing for death. He's basically saying, it's done. I, I, I'm, I'm, it's over. I'm done. And there, there's nothing left to it. And in fact, it says, even he can't, he can't even enjoy sleep. You know, at least the laborer at the end of his day can collapse into bed and, and get a refreshing night's sleep. Job says, I can't even have that I don't even have sleep to look forward to. I toss and turn. My nights are misery. When I lie down, when shall I rise? But the night is long and I'm full of tossing till the dawn. Verse 5, my flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. His physical body is continuing to deteriorate. Keep this in mind. and Keep, keep this on the back burner as we go through this entire book. The whole time he's in excruciating physical pain. This whole time his body is diseased. But it also might be saying something else. When else are people's bodies covered with dirt and worms? In the grave, of course. He's comparing his life to, to almost like living death. He's in ongoing physical pain. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. Every time Job thinks, hey, maybe I am starting to heal. Maybe this is just about over. It breaks out afresh. And his hopes are dashed. No, I guess not. I'm not getting better. This isn't over. It goes on. Verse 6, His days seem swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to the end without hope. Remember this, the weaver's shuttle is this usually wooden guide that, that weavers would use to go in between the, the different fabric uh, pieces of thread and, and wool or what have you. And they would, they would move through, and a skillful weaver would move through pretty quickly. Job says, that's like my life. It's just flashing by. There's nothing left worth living for. Verse 7, my life is a breath. My eye will never see, never again see good. His life is just misery. He doesn't have anything to look forward to. The eyes of him who sees me, in other words, God, will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be no more. These are words of faith mixed with hopelessness. Look how he's, he's juxtaposing those things. Faith, he believes God is watching over him. And at the same time, while under the watchful care of God, he knows he's going to die. Verses 9 and 10, as the cloud fades and vanishes. You ever, you ever lay out on the, on the ground or look up in the sky or maybe, maybe as, a, as a child you're looking out the window of the car as, as, as you go down the interstate. You see different cloud formations and, and you point it out to someone else and say, hey, look, that one kind of looks like a, a rabbit. Where? Oh, right, right there. Look at it. And as you look at it, well, uh, you know, not so much. Uh, no, never mind. It's gone. Job's saying that's that's what my life is like. I, I thought I was this this man who was the, the a prominent man, and, and he had everything going for him. God was smiling at me, and I was I was so blessed. Well, wait a minute. No, never mind. It's gone. That's not who I am. I'm, I'm going down to Sheol. I'm going down to the place of the dead. I'm not coming up again. I should have purpose. I should be enjoying life. I should be working towards something that counts. I should be able to move on or get past this. I should be able to accomplish something in this life. I should matter. And instead, Job says, I don't have any purpose. Life is no longer enjoyable. I'm not working towards anything that counts. I will never move on from this. This is the end. There's no point in continuing. I'm not accomplishing anything in this life. I don't matter. He hit bottom. 
In verse 11, the, we see a noticeable shift. It changes. The first one was, it's done, I'm over. This next, this next component of the, of the chapter is, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. Verse 11, therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I have nothing to lose here, Job is saying. I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to, to qualify what I say. I'm not going to be timid. And as, as I cry out, I'm done. My life is over, so there's no reason. I'm just going to come out and say it. I don't get it, God. Don't get it. I'm going to cut loose, speak in anguish and complain in bitterness. Verse 12, am I the sea or a sea monster that you set guard over me? And if you look at that verse, the ESV has, am I the sea or a sea monster? So you see one's definite, one's indefinite. The and a, some translations in IV says the say, the sea or the monster of the deep. Others, a sea or a sea monster. So there's all kinds of different combinations. Why is it that way? Because it depends. If you think he's referring to the literal sea, the ocean, and an actual creature that inhabits the ocean, then you're going to translate it one way, or if you think it's something else. And the something else would be, in ancient mythology, that the sea and the monsters that inhabit the sea were viewed as agents of evil and chaos. That was the very common understanding. In fact, the sea was deified and thought to be a powerful god or a cosmic power that set itself against other gods. And I think that's the correct understanding. I would agree that that's what the author of Job has in mind. He's asking, am I a powerful force of evil? Am I an agent that works against the created order that you would need to set guard over me and oppose me like, like you're doing right now? If so, God, then that would be an appropriate response. If I was something that was set against you, if I was a force to be reckoned with, then I get it. Then I would understand why you're doing these things to me, but I'm not. The answer to the rhetorical question is, no, I'm not. I'm just a man. And not an evil man at that. A man who's blameless, upright, fears evil, or fears God and turns away from evil. As the text has gone out of its way to show us. Verses 13 and 14. He's already referenced in verse 4 that he can't sleep. He lies awake at night. So he revisits that theme. Sleep usually provides relief. So instead, even if he does fall asleep, even if he happens to get to the point where his, uh, his pain subsides long enough for him to, to drift off, then he's haunted by terrifying dreams and nightmares. We know what those are like, right? Have you ever been terrified by a dream? Something so real, something so terrifying that you, you never want to go back to that again? Yeah, that's what Job has every night. And just in case he gets to sleep. Strangling and death look like better options than continuing to live under his circumstances. He loathes his life. Verse 17 and 19, I don't get it, God. Why would you pay this attention to someone, meaning negative attention? Why would you turn your focus on me like this? I feel like I'm under your magnifying glass. You're burning my feelers off. I'm a little ant here, and you're, you're treating me this way. I don't get it. Day after day, morning after morning, you're testing me. 
You're pushing me. It doesn't seem to have any purpose. How long will you not look away from me? That negative in there makes us think twice about it. What he's saying is, how long will you continue your, your focus and your, your staring at me with all this, this negative attention, all this suffering? How long will you keep this intense pressure up? How long will it be till you look away? And then he follows up by saying, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit. He's saying, just give me a second of relief here, God. Just, just turn this, this suffering gaze that you've got focused on me. Just leave me alone for a second. Just give me time to swallow. I'd like some relief, please. I don't get it. Verse 20, if I sin, what do I do? What do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Now, when Job says, if I sin, he doesn't, not claiming sinless perfection. I think we, I hope we understand that at this point. He's not doubting whether or not he's ever sinned before. Of course he has. What he's saying is, what have I done to you to deserve this? What, what did I do to you? What evil did I do that would cause this type of response and this measure of response? Why are you treating me this, treating me this way? What did I do? And then finally, here it is. Here's the question. Why have you made me your mark? Why am I suffering? Why have I become a burden to you? Why have you made me your special project? Why? And then a final question. Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Why don't you act consistently with your character, God? Remember, this is Job. This is a man who has a relationship with God. He knows God and, he know, and God knows him. He knows God's character. And this isn't making sense. God, why don't you act consistently with your character? This doesn't seem right. I don't get it. He knows that God, if he wanted to, could end this. So why doesn't he? Job's final utterance at the end of his speech is a repeat of verse 8, a mixture of faith and hopelessness. If you, I know you still see me, but I'm going to die. It's over. If we had to summarize chapter 7, if we had to condense it down to just a couple sentences, it would be something like this. Job has hit bottom and given up. He's given himself over to death. He's accepted that his life is over. And with nothing to lose, he cries out to God in perplexity and bewilderment and says, I don't get it. I don't understand why you keep doing this to me. It doesn't seem to match your character. So he asks, why? Why would God cause the suffering and why would God prolong the suffering? And he asks that question. So it's, it is. It's the big why question. Remember? This really is at the heart of this whole book. Why do the righteous suffer? So now, we've already talked about the glory of God. We are to live for the glory of God. We are to suffer for the glory of God. That doesn't change anything. Okay? Uh, as, he, as he cries out, um, he's crying out in suffering, but he, we remember part of the goal of suffering is to continue to glorify God in the midst of that. We talked about this when we went over chapter 3. We said, now is the time to serve God in the midst of suffering. There is coming a time in eternity when we will not be able to praise God or glorify God in the midst of suffering. That time is now. So we need to take advantage of that. We will not be able to 
offer God an offering laced with suffering in eternity. He's given us that opportunity now. So that's true. We also said we didn't need to know the answer to the why question if we know the answer to the who question. Remember this. We don't necessarily need to know why we're suffering if we know who is the sender. And we said the sender is God. God is in charge. God knows what he's doing. God, for his people, is always working for their good. So because we know who the sender is, we don't necessarily need to know the specific why question. That's also true. And we also know there are many different reasons why God may bring suffering into the life of a believer that are uniquely tailored for that believer. Have you ever gone to get some really nice clothes like maybe a, a suit or a dress, maybe a wedding dress or a suit for a wedding or a tuxedo or a nice dress or something, they, they take it off the rack and you try it on and then what? Alterations, right? The, the, the pants are, are, are really long. They're, in fact, they don't even have a hem on them. They're altered to fit you in particular. The dress may be, you know, maybe dragging behind. They, they've got to take it up. They've got to take it in. They have to stretch something out, pull something in, lengthen it up. They, they alter it. It's uniquely tailored so it fits that person and it looks great when they're done. It fits perfect. God has uniquely tailored reasons why he brings suffering into the lives of believers. And they're different for everybody. They're, they're uniquely tailored so that they fit perfectly. For example, sometimes God wants a believer to learn how to praise him in the midst of suffering. God says, uh, that's great. I'm glad you're praising me. I'm glad you're worshiping me. When everything's going wonderful, I want you to learn how to praise and worship me when things are going junky, when life stinks. I want you to learn how to praise and worship me during the junky, stinky times. Here's some suffering. Learn. Sometimes God is disciplining a believer through suffering. God says, I love you too much. I'm not going to allow you to continue to walk in this sin. I'm not going to allow you to continue to go through this cycle of, of, of being sorry and then rushing right back to it and then being sorry and then rushing right back to it. God says, I'm not going to let that continue. I will continue. I, I, I will stop it. And here, here's some suffering to get your attention. You can't keep drinking out of that filthy cistern. Let's bring a stop to that. Sometimes God is refining and sanctifying a believer through suffering. Character issues. Maybe God needs a, to sand off a few of those rough edges. And suffering is the tool that he uses. Sometimes God is preparing or equipping a believer through suffering. God, who knows everything all the time, in one moment says, look, I, I understand down here, you're going to go through something that's going to be extremely difficult. And so I'm going to bring something in your life, some suffering here, that's going to cause you to get a few calluses on your hands so that when you get over here, you don't implode. I'm having you go through this suffering. I'm having you go through this trial so you will be able to withstand this trial and we'll be able to make it through in a God-glorifying manner. So I'm preparing you, I'm equipping you. All uniquely tailored reasons. 
Any one of those could be happening to any believer to varying degrees at any time. So we understand there are a lot of uniquely tailored reasons why God brings suffering in the lives of believers. However, there is one overarching reason why believers suffer that we all have in common. Suffering is the believer's participation ribbon and every believer gets one. Suffering is the believer's participation ribbon and every believer gets one. Now, there's two parts to that. Let's break it down. Number one, suffering is the believer's participation ribbon. How is that? Suffering is the believer's participation ribbon because it shows that we are participating in the mission and the work of Jesus and his church. Colossians 1, 24, 25, this is one of the verses, we're going to look at a few key verses, and as we make our way through this, we're going to have to hold on to some concepts and, and then put them together at the end, so just keep this up in your working, working memory. Colossians 1, 24, 25, now this is Paul, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. This, this is a verse that talks about Christ's afflictions and how he is filling up in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So first of all, what this does not mean, this does not mean that Jesus' sufferings on the cross as he completed his salvific work are somehow incomplete. That's not what this means. It does not mean that Jesus did almost enough to pay the penalty for sin, but not quite, and it needs filling up by his followers. That's not it. We don't need to augment Jesus' atoning works. So that's number one. Number two, it does not mean that Jesus continues suffering through his, suffer through his followers. It does not mean that Jesus continues suffering through his followers. Yes, we are united to Christ spiritually. Yes, we are his church. We are called his body. And yes, the shepherd grieves whenever he sees one of his sheep hurting or suffering. However, this does not mean that Jesus himself is continuing to suffer by proxy through his followers when they suffer. That's not what this means. It says what is lacking in regards regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. So whatever it is, it's regarding the difficulties, afflictions, and sufferings associated with Jesus and the gospel he proclaimed and that his church continues to proclaim for the sake of the church. Do you see how Paul takes this and, and he talks about his role of proclaiming the gospel as a minister? to make the word of God fully known. So when we see that phrase, Christ's afflictions, that's not possessive. When Paul's saying, I'm, I'm filling up, I'm, my sufferings, he's not saying they're Jesus' sufferings. Jesus suffered on the cross, and that's why he said it is finished. It's descriptive. What kind of afflictions? What kind of suffering is it? Christ's afflictions. So Paul and everyone else in Christ, to one degree or another, are filling up Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church whenever they experience suffering as a result of participating in the mission and work that Jesus gave his church. 
So proclaiming the gospel, making disciples. Suffering is the believer's participation ribbon because it shows we are participating in the mission and the work of Jesus Christ of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. So every time a follower of Jesus experiences suffering for the sake of the gospel, they're earning a participation ribbon. All the way from experiencing exclusion or mild insults or mocking for the sake of the for the sake of the cross for the sake of Jesus Christ all the way down to being beaten and imprisoned and killed for the sake of the gospel those are Christ's afflictions those are the participation ribbon so suffering is the believer's participation ribbon and every believer gets one. Let's talk about the second part. Every believer gets one. Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. Provided. Provided we suffer with him. That could also be translated as only if we suffer with him. Or if it is indeed true, we suffer with him. In other words, it is conditional. He's linking these two things together. He's saying suffering for the sake of Christ and being children of God, co-heirs with Christ, are conditional. They're linked. You can't have one without the other. And now all of a sudden we see why this participation ribbon is more valuable than anything the world has to offer. It's linked with our salvation. We are considered children of God and heirs with Christ only if we have a participation ribbon that shows we have suffered for his name. Look at the rest of these verses. Philippians 3, 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 1 Peter 4, 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad with his glory is revealed. Did you see that Romans, uh, Philippians, 1 Peter, they're all talking about suffering in the context of what? Glorification. They're, they're all linking these two things, the sufferings of, of, of Christ, the, the Christ afflictions, this participation ribbon that shows we're participating in the work and the mission of Jesus Christ. They're, they're linked together. So suffering for Christ, when it, when it appears, is, is, is grouped with and is linked with the fullest realization of our salvation. And that means that all genuine believers will get our partic- a participation ribbon. If we want to be glorified, Scripture says, if we want to attain the resurrection of the dead, if we want to rejoice when his glory is revealed, then we must have a participation ribbon of suffering for his name. Now somebody might say, um, hold on a second, are you saying all you have to do is suffer for Christ and, and then you get salvation? What about faith? No, I'm not saying that. Of course not. I'm saying that the Bible teaches that participation in the sufferings of Christ is a necessary mark or evidence of being in Christ by grace through faith. It's kind of like works. Remember in James when, when he says, faith without works is dead? He's not saying that we're saved by works. 
He's saying that if we are genuinely saved, then there will be works as evidence that we are genuinely saved. It's the same thing here. If we are truly saved, there will be suffering for the sake of Christ. It's not what saves us. But if we are generally saved, it will be there. We will have a participation remedy. Every believer gets one. And this really shouldn't surprise us because Jesus went first, right? Jesus went first. This is the pattern that our Master laid down. Suffering first, exaltation second. This is the pattern that Paul walked in. Suffering first, exaltation second. This is the pattern his church walks in. Suffering first, exaltation second. And Jesus suffered more than anyone for the sake of his church. We're never going to out-suffer Jesus like a good leader, he never asks his followers to do anything that he himself was not willing to do. And he did it. So it's not a question of if, but when. First Peter 4, 12-13 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So a very loose paraphrase would be, don't freak out when you experience these sufferings. Rejoice. You're earning your participation, remember. And remember, you want one of those. That's not one that's going to get dumped into the garbage. You're going to want to hang on to that one. To be clear, this is suffering that results from remaining faithful to Jesus Christ, participating in his mission and work. It's not suffering that we endure as a result of sin. It's not suffering that that unbelievers endure. Uh, Again, 1 Peter 4, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I think we all understand this, right? I mean, if you, for whatever reason, decide to go out and rob a bank and you get caught and you get sentenced and put in prison, that's not Christ's afflictions. Okay? You're, not, you're not in prison. You can't count that as you know, you're, the cross that you're bearing or that the suffering you're experiencing as a follower of Christ. No, that's suffering as a result of the sinful choice that you made. Okay? Big difference. That's not a participation ribbon. Job was earning his participation ribbon. Job may or may not have realized it at the time, but he was a type of Christ. There was a reason he was going through this. He couldn't see it at the time. He's crying out to God, I don't get it. He was earning his participation ribbon. He's participating in the mission and work of Jesus Christ. Not only was he numbered with the transgressors, like we saw last week, where Jesus was also numbered with the transgressors, that was, in that way he was a type of, the, of Christ, but also in following Jesus' pathway of, of being lowered, suffering, and exaltation. Jesus Christ was with the eternal Godhead in the heavens, in the heavenly realms. He lowered himself. He became, in the likeness of man, a servant. He suffered, and then he was raised and exalted. 
Job at the beginning was up here. He was the greatest in all the land. Then he was lowered. He had everything stripped away from him. He was suffering. And then at the end, we know the end of this book, he is exalted. And given more than he had before. He's a type of Christ. He points us to Jesus. I hope we see that, because this book is about a lot more than looking to Job as an example of somebody who suffers. It, it's pointing to Jesus. He was earning his participation ribbon. Somebody might say, well, <laughs> yeah, I'm no Job. I'm not Jesus, and I'm definitely, I'm definitely not Job either, and uh, I hear you, but... Um, I'm just not that um, of a star player on Jesus' team. Somebody might, might hear this and say, you know what, I, I, I haven't been beaten for Christ. I'm, I'm not a frontline missionary. I haven't shed my blood for Jesus. I, I'm not sure if I've earned a participation ribbon. You know, I live in Frankfurt. What have I done? Sometimes, I don't know if they still do this, but a lot of school districts at the end of the season have something called an awards banquet or an awards night. And they invite all the, the athletes that played during that season, all the athletes that, that were out for the sport for this, this banquet and their parents. And usually the coach stands up and he says some nice things about the players and thanks the you know athletic boosters and things like that. And then they, he talks about some of the highlights and then eventually he gets around to the awards and he starts passing them out. So one by one, the, the students come up, the student athletes, and they get awards for you know most uh, uh, best offensive player, best best defensive player, most rebounds or most tackles or most yards rushing, and they all they all get these awards and then. Most valuable player or cap, team captain. I mean, they get through all of those, but I've never seen one where they stop there. They always do this. At the very end, after all those individual awards are given, the coach calls every single player that was on the team and they get a pin. And usually in the shape of whatever the sport was, like a football or basketball or something. And here's the thing it doesn't matter if they were most valuable player or team captain. It doesn't matter if they started. In fact, it doesn't even matter if they got off the bench. Even the manager gets one. They didn't even suit up, but they all wore the jersey. And they're all called up, and they're given that participation. Again. So it is with followers of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you're not a frontline missionary shedding your blood on some beachhead missions and in some you know, 1040 window country. It doesn't matter if you're, you don't have to be the, the, the you don't have to be an evangelist or, or, or a pastor or, or an elder or a deacon. It doesn't matter how remotely you're serving Jesus Christ in his church. It doesn't matter how many, how many layers of behind the scenes you're, you're serving, you're supporting through, through either physically or, or through prayer or financially or through whatever it is. However, in any way that you're connected to the mission of Jesus Christ and his church, any suffering or sacrifice you experience in this life, that's your participation rather. And remember, it's conditional. We don't have to wonder, well, you know, maybe there's going to be a son that, that don't suffer at all. No. He links it with salvation. 
If we are co-heirs with Christ, if we're going to be with him in glory, then we will receive one of these participation ribbons. And if you're still thinking, I don't know, remember the season's not over yet. If you are in Christ, you will receive a participation ribbon. Now here's where the contrast between believers and unbelievers is immense. Believers, whenever they suffer for the name of Christ, they are earning that participation ribbon. They're, they're literally storing for themselves treasure up in heaven. The unbeliever is not. The unbeliever has no hope. When an unbeliever suffers, there's no redeeming quality. That's not redeeming suffering or redemptive suffering. That's just suffering. In fact, that's a foretaste of what's coming in eternity. You're, you're not going to find relief as an unbeliever from your suffering in this world once you die. It's going to increase infinitely. What a difference between a believer and unbeliever when it comes to this, this topic, when it comes to the topic of, of suffering. The chasm is immense. If there's anyone here this morning that is in unbelief, you have no participation from You're not sharing in the sufferings of Christ because you're not in Christ. You have nothing to look forward to. There is no hope. But there is still time. Jesus extends this offer. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who turns from their sin will have their sins forgiven and will be engrafted into Jesus Christ. So I would call on you this morning, if you are in unbelief, this morning, believe on him. Turn from your sin. Today. Don't put it off. You are morally accountable to God. You will stand before the King Jesus and you will provide, you will, you will ask for a reckoning and an accounting for your sin. If you turn to him now, you will not face him as the judge that's bringing wrath. You will face him as the Savior, as the shepherd, as the one who saves from the wrath to come. So turn to Christ. This is the big question. Why do believers suffer? And here's the answer. Because it is necessary. It is linked to our salvation. Our glorification. Why do believers suffer? Because it is necessary. It is a requirement for following Jesus Christ. It is our participation ribbon that shows that we are participating in the work and the mission of Jesus Christ. And this is one participation ribbon whose value does not fade over time. This is the one you want to hang on to. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, we see Job, who is indeed a type of Christ. A man who, who followed a very similar path as Jesus. And who may not even have known, and certainly not to the fullest extent at the time, but he was earning his participation ribbon as he suffered. Father, help us to, to rest in the finished work of Christ. 
and to obey your word where it says rejoice when we encounter these sufferings. Father, not that we actively seek it. We're not going around stirring or poking, agitating the waters, trying to seek suffering. But Father, we also want to abandon any kind of thinking that says that it's avoidable or that that it's not for us. Father, we want to participate in the sufferings of Christ so that we will be with him in glory. Father, continue to help us understand this book and also give us a right understanding of, of why we suffer for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.